All right, we are starting a new sermon series today of which I am incredibly excited about. It is the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. If there's not, there's one in the seat back in front of you, in front of somebody somewhere. So you find a Bible somewhere in this room if you don't have one. And it's later in the book. It's about, um, you know, about over there. It's in the New Testament in case you're looking for it. And so we named this sermon series The Acts of the Holy Spirit. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see a different title. It says The Acts of the Apostles. And so we're not trying to be pretentious here or anything. In church history, it was regularly, uh, early on, began being called The Acts of the Apostles because what we're going to see in the book of Acts is Jesus finishing his his ministry. He goes back to heaven and we see the church actually being born. And so there's two guys in particular that the book hones in on, which is Peter and then mostly Paul in the later chapters. And so we see some other apostles engaging in ministry also. And so traditionally it was called the Acts of the Apostles. But we're going to see this morning, we're going to start with the premise that it's actually the Spirit of God that is everything that happens in Acts should be attributed to. So it's God's Spirit that is moving and is working as a church uh, is born on the very first day as you're going to see um, in a couple of weeks. And so this book is incredibly exciting. It's what it is. It's a historical account of the beginning of the church. It's not some lame history book like, okay, this is interesting. This guy met with this. Like this is an action-packed kind of book. I mean, we have thousands becoming Christians from one single sermon, right? I mean, imagine... One sermon happening, and it's an entire room full of 2,000 people saying, I want to be a Christian now. It's like, whoa, that's crazy, right? That happened. And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks. We have, we're going to see a man who was paralyzed for 40 years be brought to his feet by a miracle of God and started walking around. We're going to see that. We're going to see the Holy Spirit not just saving massive amounts of people, becoming Christians at once, but also we're going to see the Spirit dispensing Wrath and people actually dropping dead before the Holy Spirit. We're going to see apostles getting arrested, angels breaking them out of jail, earthquakes shaking their prison cells loose. We're going to see the story of the very first Christian martyr. We're going to see the story of the biggest enemy of Christianity in its earliest days, which was a guy named Saul. We're going to see him fall to his knees before Jesus to become Christianity's biggest advocate overnight. So the book is full of amazing stories, amazing things of the works of God. And if Steven Spielberg were to make it, it probably wouldn't be an awful, but it had a chance to be a really cool movie if you were to do it. Just purely by the history or the, by the action of the book. But it's so much more than just this action-packed historical account. It is a theological treaty of the birth of the church and how God's spirit was at work in the growth and the expansion of of God's kingdom, the church here on earth. We're going to understand the book of Acts, how the New Testament fits with the old. Maybe you haven't taken a lot of you know, uh, Bible study things, and maybe you're still thoroughly confused on what the world, the Old Testament is about, and the New Testament, and how they even fit together. But we're going to see how those things do by many sermons given by the apostles as they link up those two. We see, oh, it's one big story. We're going, to, we're going to define the church's mission and what the church should be doing. Um, when the church was born, they were not aimlessly like, oh, I guess I believe in Jesus now. Well, what do we do? 
they had a specific mission in mind given to them by Jesus himself before he left. And this morning we're going to see what that mission is. And so the book of Acts defines for us what the church should be about. We're going to see what evangelism is, what we mean by evangelism. Why should we engage and participate in evangelism? What to expect from evangelism? We're going to see and understand God as sovereign over all races of men. Primarily in the Old Testament, we saw him working in a specific place to a specific group of people called the Israelites. We're going to see all the prophecies fulfilled about how he is not just God of Israel, but God over all the earth. We're going to see him actually spreading the tent of Israel, if, if you will, to those who were not Jewish, the Gentiles. We're going to see that happening for the very first time. We're going to understand the effects of the death of Christ. The Gospel of Luke, as we're going to see, um, he wrote, the guy named Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote Acts. We're going to see this one work in two separate books. And we're going to see when Jesus died in the Gospels, the Gospels kind of end. We're going to see, okay, well, so what was that fully about? We know that he said you know, he died as a ransom for, for many, and we know that he died for us, but uh, how does the gospel work? What does it mean that he died for our sins? What is that? How do, we, how do we really define and understand that? We're going to see in various sermons in the book of Acts that clearly define what the death of Christ meant for those who did not have faith in Jesus. And we're going to learn how to share the good news of Christ to various people groups, how to properly contextualize the message while staying true to the central focus of the gospel because the church was born in Jerusalem. It spread north and it spread west across the entire ancient Roman Empire. And so we see the Apostle Paul preaching to a primary, primarily religious group of Jews and the way he shares the gospel is in one very specific way that made sense to that audience. And then we see him in Athens, Greece, and he's preaching a message that sounds entirely almost on the surface different, but then you still see, oh, it's still the gospel message being presented, but his audience was not religious Jewish people. They were a bunch of pagan Greek people. And so Paul shared the gospel in a way that made sense in their world. And so we're going to see how do we do that, because we are tasked with the same thing, to bring the gospel to all people groups. And it takes some homework to understand what the people's uh, group that we're sharing the gospel with, how their mind operates, what is their worldview, how do we engage their worldview. So we see all these things happening in the book of Acts. But more importantly for us, as a new church, just a few months old, we want to understand our mission. We want to, we want to understand our vision here on the Jersey Shore. What should we be about? What should we be doing? We have a conviction as your pastors that the main thing shall always be the main thing. And if we're doing things that are not connected to the main thing, we should not be doing those things. Okay? And so now we want to go to Acts and say, well, what better place to go than the birth of the church and to say, all right, what did they do? Because, yeah, in church history, the church has not always been the greatest entity. We know there's a lot of stains in our history. And so how do we go back to the purest form of the church and ask the question, what did they do? And whatever they did, we want to do. What better place to go than the book of Acts, which recounts that exactly for us. And so I pray in the oncoming weeks as we have together going through Acts, this will be a while in the book of Acts. It's a pretty long book. And that we will be able to have that biblical understanding of what our mission and vision will be. And so who wrote this book? A little bit of background information before we go into this book. If you're a nerd, you're like, woohoo, background information. If you're not a nerd, 
you're like, it's lunchtime, what's going on? So hang with me, and we'll get into some exciting stuff in a minute, but I, I, I get excited about background information because I'm probably weird. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. I know I just said this, but bear with me. Trinity people, you just finished the, the Trinity of the, um, the Gospel of Luke before we came together. And Remedy people, you just finished the Gospel of Mark. And so it's kind of a fitting thing to go into the book of Acts. That's the last time you hear me say that. It's the last time. This is my notes, and then I've just read my notes, and that's why I get free my notes. Okay. So, so Luke wrote both of those books, and uh, he was known as a beloved physician. And he is addressing his work to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek word, means friend of God. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, in his prologue there, he kind of, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. This guy was probably a, uh, on the higher ups of Roman society. All right? And apparently, we learned this from Luke, he was taught something of Christianity. And Luke says, I want to make sure that you really get the correct account here of what Jesus did when he came what happened in his ministry. And here he essentially is, is continuing that by saying, I want you to understand what Jesus continued to do. We'll go back to Jesus continuing to work as the church was born. And just a side note, if you get the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts, it's a lot of writing Luke did for one person, all right? For one person. So just as a side note, if you have a friend who really wants to know something about Jesus, if it takes up dozens of hours of your time to sit with one individual and just explain to them what the Bible is all about and who Jesus really is, that is well worth your dozens of hours of pouring to that one single person. Luke thought it necessary to write all this stuff, these long books, for one single individual. And so if that happens in your life, don't discredit all that time spent with one single person. And so he wanted to ensure that he got the correct message that Jesus taught. And guys, we want the same Thing here, especially as a new church. We want to get the pure, the, 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 the correct things what the church should be about. And that is also why we're approaching this text. And so we're going to kind of jump right in to this in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So as we begin this, I want to lay out a thesis, if you will, a, a, uh, a theme for the entire book of Acts. And it is that Jesus continues to bring his kingdom to earth by the work of the Spirit. So let's read through this in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appeared to them during 40 days, and speaking with them about the kingdom of God. So this is not just a historical account, but it's also really the first apologetic for the Christian faith. By the word apologetic, we mean um, uh, defense of the faith, in a way. He's saying, this is, this is the true account, Theophilus. You've been taught some things, I want to make sure that you're hearing what it really is about. We're going to see that Luke is, he takes great pains in his sermon as he reaccounts the sermons that happen. Um, he, he takes great pains to define exactly why Jesus died, what the church is, what the apostles were preaching. And so he wants us, he wants his, um, his friend to really understand these things 
correctly. And we see in verse 1, it says what Jesus began to do and teach. So we're going to see that it, Jesus, even though he leaves the earth, it's still Jesus working in the church. We're going to see how that plays out. But he mentions something very important here. For 40 days, Jesus rose from the dead. For 40 days, he appeared. The, the New Testament accounts about 10 different times that he appeared. Um, in one case, Paul recounts the time that many hundreds of people actually saw the risen Lord. Um, it wasn't just the apostles who saw him. He appeared to them in various um, times. He appeared to people on the road to Emmaus, um, these two uh, disciples that he had. So he kind of appeared uh, maybe more than 10 times, but we know of 10 different times. And so when he appeared, he kept talking about the kingdom of God to them. And so when you hear that word kingdom of God, the word kingdom is a little bit archaic today. We don't have, I guess there's some kingdoms still left in the world, but that's mostly uh, not really used. It's kind of a lost phrase of what that entails. And so I want to stop there because Jesus resurrected, all right, and he, he had 40 days left and he talked about something. And I want to know what he talked about, because what he talked about in that precious 40-day time period when he was walking around on the earth in his resurrected form must be really important for us to understand. And Luke wanted to make sure that Theophilus knew that that was what he talked about, right? In the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospels, in all the Gospels, that is Jesus' primary topic he addressed was the kingdom of God. He said things like, hey guys, I'm here, so the kingdom of God is in your midst, Right? And he was like, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And he used language saying that it's, it's here because I'm here. And that was the primary thing that he addressed in the Gospels. So I want to stop there and, and just ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? What is he even talking about? And so, this is my favorite thing to do. I love doing this. I want to go to the beginning of your Bibles, okay? And I'm going to start and preach the, the entire story of the Bible to you guys in order that you understand what Luke means. So I'm going to start at the very beginning of creation history. I'm going to work our way slowly um, in the next hour and a half. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, not true. Probably not true. If it is, my wife can throw things at me until I stop. Um, we're going to start there and look at what the Bible defines as the kingdom of God and then work our way up back to Luke in the book of Acts here and see what he is talking about. So let's start at the very beginning at the Garden of of Eden. We're going to work on the premise that the kingdom of God is where he is ruling and raving, reigning over his people. Where he has set up his king, where he is ruling and reigning over his people. And one of the purest forms that we see in scripture, that began in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, he created Adam and Eve. He was living with them. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no separation between them and God. They could literally be here and God could be right here and there was no separation. They, could, they were in, in harmony together. And God is the originator and the creator of all things. That's what his original design for this world was, is to be next to him, physically with him. Because if you look at our hearts, our hearts are essentially, think of this giant keyhole that never has an end, or this giant pit that never has a bottom. We have an eternal God who eternally could fill any eternal bottomless pit that there is. He could fill that. And he created us needing something that is God-sized. And so we were with him, and we were satisfied. Because that's how God designed us, is to need something that large. If you're caught up in addictions, caught up in things that encompass you because you go back to it, and you go back to it because the time you did this, it wasn't enough. So you have to go back to it, and it still wasn't enough. But maybe for a moment, oh, this is great. 
Now i got to go back to that. We're always seeking to fill this bottomless pit. But at the beginning of time, we were with the eternal God who satisfied that for us. But we screwed that up because we were convinced through the serpent. He said, you know, instead of looking to this, to this God who created all things, you know, and God defined what right and wrong and what is good and is bad. He said, you know, you, you can eat, do all this, but don't eat from this tree. There's an element of faith there because this tree must have been very beautiful. But he's like, don't touch that fruit. You don't need that fruit. You have everything else you could possibly desire. I need you to trust me. And the serpent said, maybe what you have in God isn't quite enough. Maybe you could get, um, you could, you could kind of make your own rules. And maybe by doing that, you could find something uh, even better than what God has for you. And so, Adam and Eve were tempted, and they were convinced, well, if I just decide what's good on my own, if I kind of take the role of God and say, I'm just going to call my own shots here, uh, maybe things will be better for us. And if God said, if you, if the day you do that, you're going to die. Death will enter your story. Pain will enter your story. Sorrow and misery will enter the human race if you choose to do that. And they did. And that is what happened. As God was calling curses down on Adam, um, in the middle of the curses, there's a, there's a line of hope in Genesis 3.15, where he says, one day I'm going to bring justice to the serpent. There's a child that Eve will have one day that will um, crush the head of the serpent, but he will be bruised in the process. And so what happened there, uh, scholars look to that as the first prophecy of Jesus himself. And so there was this hope that even though the curse was brought into the world, it would not always be a cursed world, that one day God would actually come and reverse that. That one day he would come and to change that, to flip everything back and to get Eden restored and to go back to what he originally wanted. And so many centuries, uh, who knows how long later, Abraham is on the scene. And God, he says, all right, Abraham, uh, I want to get your children and bring a blessing to the whole world. Genesis chapter 12. And so we know that God has not just Abraham and his family in mind, but he says, I, I want to begin working on the world scene here, starting with your family, because I haven't given up on humankind, I haven't given up on mankind, I have not given up with this curse that's in the world to let them just die and wallow in misery. We're not deists here. God did not just abandon the world and say, sorry guys, uh, you really messed everything up. I'm just going to get out of here and do this again. Like He didn't do that. He continued to pursue us. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to pursue you you're going to have children. They're going to have a lot of children. They're going to have a lot of children, too. And through his, your children, the entire world is going to receive a blessing. So God is on the move once again to restore this kingdom. Because what happened when they sinned the Garden of Eden? They couldn't be with God anymore. He had to give them the boot. He kicked them out of Eden. We're going to see that theme happens again. He kicks them out of Eden and says, guys, because of sin, there's now, as Isaiah says, a separation between you and your God. And therefore, you cannot be with me in purity anymore. So they were exiled from Eden, but God is now pursuing Abraham and all of his children. Many centuries later, Moses brings Israel out of Egypt, all these wonderful stories, and God gives them a law. And he says, all right, this is a special people. I want to live with you again, just like I did with Eden, Adam and Eve. I want to live with you guys again. But there's a big difference because now sin is present. And you can't just simply stand next to me anymore. So you have to build this tabernacle, build this temple. I'm going to live inside this temple. You can't just walk up to me because you'll just drop dead, all right? And so he, he um, created this whole system of the sacrificial system to where you had to bring an animal for your sin and have it slain before God in order to um, be of substitution before you and God so you could worship. And it was kind of a teaching thing to say, 
Uh, if you think of this tabernacle, the, the animals getting slaughtered all the time, this would be a disgusting scene. And God was saying, this is how disgusting sin is. This is what's keeping you from me. He gave him all these laws to say, I want you to live holy and righteously as people in my image. But because sin is present, you got to know how to live now because you don't just know this by yourself. Sin has destroyed your heart. It has overcome your heart. You don't naturally know God's original design for our lives. You, don't know, you no longer naturally are inclined to do good before God. So he had to give them 613 laws to obey in order to be close to him, to be in right relationship to him, and to be, once again, his people and him as king over his people. Now, who wants to go get a book of 613 laws, have a king before you to say, if you do this, you can be a part of my kingdom. So here you go. Who wants that? It's like, it wasn't clearly that, you know, of, of a black and white situation, but ultimately the law that was given to Israel, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, it was a teacher, it was a tutor, to teach them something very important about ourselves, about the human nature, and about our own lives. It is that we cannot keep those laws. We tried. In the story of Israel, the name Israel means struggling with God. As Israel became a nation... With their law, they had kings for many centuries. The stories go on and on of their struggling. They built a beautiful temple, and God was living in this temple over his people. But they continually said, all right, God, I know we have you. We have this wonderful law, but the, the stuff the nations are doing, uh, all the different gods they're worshiping, um, a lot of it was very uh, like sexual in nature with their worship, and so very tempting to sin based and say, I want to go worship over there because they got like prostitutes in their temple. That sounds fun. Um, so let's figure out how to have a bit of this religion. We'll keep some of ours that God passed down to us. We'll, we'll, we'll grab a bit of, of this religion and, and we'll do all, we'll kind of syncretize all these different religions and have God in the middle and God saying, no, no, I'm the only God. You have the law. Look at the law and see my heart for you. You cannot do this. He says, if you continue to do this, because he brought them to a special land called a promised land. Think of the promised land as a restored kind of Garden of Eden. Okay, God again with his people in a special place. But he says, if you do this, I'm going to kick you out of Eden again, essentially. Right? I'm going to kick you out of where I am living and send you to a foreign nation. Just like I kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, I'm going to kick you guys out of here. Because if you can't love me and pursue me, you have to leave here and be in exile. And so centuries went by. They struggled with God. They continued to struggle until finally... They were kicked out of the land around 586 B.C. They were kicked out of the land to live in a place called Babylon. All the while, these prophets were preaching this hope of God's kingdom that would not just be in Israel, but that would extend from sea to sea. Isaiah described it as the tents of Israel would be expanded to include all peoples. They talked about a divine ruler that would come, right? They say his name would be Emmanuel, which would be God with us. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He says, of his kingdom there will be no end. And so there is this picture that even Israel and their state, they were kind of being taught, like, this isn't really the fullness of what God has in mind for the kingdom. It was a picture, God with his people, right? It was a picture of what God had in mind for the kingdom, kind of like Eden was a little, maybe a little bit better of a picture, but still there. But this kingdom, with this divine ruler coming, it would extend across the entire world. Right? Isaiah says, all nations and all people shall be bowing at his feet. 
We see the book of Daniel, which was written when Israel was kicked out of the land. Daniel was written. And Daniel was said, one like the ancient of days. I want to actually read this for you. Um, he says, one day, uh, behold, with the clouds of heaven, he said he's having the vision, there came a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As Daniel was writing this, Israel had just faced their kingdom that was destroyed. So they were being taught, this isn't it. There's something even better than this that God has in mind. And it was meant to be a hope for Israel. It says, yes, you were lost in your sins, but one day something even greater is coming. And there's a Messiah, a Savior figure coming to bring this in to your story. And it won't be just you, but it will be including all peoples of all nations. So 70 years later, they come back to the land of Israel, okay? But they are essentially, think of like Guam in our states, right? It's not even like really a state. I don't know what Guam, a province, I guess they call it, right? What's the name of that province? Right? Territory, yeah, territory. Think of like Guam or like the uh, um, um, Puerto Rico. Is that, is that a territory? Yes. Sorry, I'm throwing myself out there. I said, thank you. Thank you for affirming. Think of their land and their state as a... Uh, this, this kingdom, like, it's not really a kingdom because that's how they are in this vast empire at the time. The Persians were ruling. And that's what they were. So the Persian king is sent back to their land, and here they are, this tiny little, this little, you know, this little state. They have all these promises of God, all these grand promises. They're saying, what, what in the world is this? This is nothing. Like, we're just like subjects of this huge empire. We have no authority, no power, no control. We have no money, no, no people. Right? There's tiny little people group living in Jerusalem saying, like, I, I don't know, this is surely nothing that God promised. But here we are. So God, we're, we're waiting for you to bring this, this worldwide kingdom. We're going to be ruling and reigning with this Messiah. We're, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting. So history goes on. The Romans come, right? Take over the whole world. Israel is simply annexed to be a part of the Roman Empire. So the Romans are ruling. And now you have Israel that is even more subject, even more mighty rulers like the Romans, and they're saying, God, you are faithful, you are true, your promises are real. How are you going to get these promises to be true today? The Roman Empire is literally worldwide. Are you going to overthrow them? And so they were waiting. Like, where is this Messiah? He's going to come and bring this to us. Like, he has, he has to overthrow the Romans. And then a baby is born in a little town called Bethlehem, right, where these grand things are being said about him. The son of David, the king, he's born. And Bethlehem, the king of Israel is here, the king of the Jews. And so over the course of Christ's life, 30 years later, his ministry begins and he's saying, the kingdom is here, I, the, the kingdom's in your midst. And so as time went on, people are like, this, this, this guy's it, right? The triumphal entry comes, and he comes into Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life. After years of ministry, he's healing people, blind people are seeing, dead people are being raised, he's preaching, lives are being change you have people who were swindling and, and, and these tax collectors who were just robbing people blind their lives radically changed overnight by this man's preaching so everybody's like surely this is the messiah surely this is not just the messiah but the king that is going to restore this grand kingdom over all peoples he will overthrow the romans this is the guy and as jesus entered jerusalem the triumphal entry they they granted him like a king so this is this is the king here he is this is it, what we've been waiting for. The promises are going to be fulfilled. And then Jesus begins saying things like, my kingdom's not of this world. That's not 
why I'm here. You have in the garden against the enemy, he gets arrested, and Peter's like swinging the sword around, and he's like, I, I could send down a million angels and take out people. But that's not, we're not here to fight, Peter. But kings fight. Like, what do you mean you're not here to fight? Kings fight. That's what it takes to be king to set yourself up over the Romans. You've got to fight the Romans. What do you, it's like, I, that's, that's not what we're doing, Peter. That's not why I'm here. I have something different in mind. Pilate, as he was on trial, just beaten and, and bloody, he asked him, are you king of the Jews? And still Jesus did not deny. He's like, yeah, I am. I am king of the Jews. Nobody, the blinders of Salon, nobody quite understood what was going on. The king of the Jews dies, right? He was telling people, I'm going to die as a ransom for many, but still they didn't quite understand what was going on. They didn't understand that this Messiah figure must suffer, as Isaiah says. He's a suffering servant that's come, right? So he dies. The hopelessness for these apostles are like, I don't know what we just got ourselves wrapped up into, but our, our hero just died. And then three days later, he was rose from the dead. Right? And that's what the Gospel of Luke kind of brings us to, is this resurrected Lord that was still teaching about the kingdom of God. And so let's look into this. He says in verse 4, he's in his resurrected state, and he's talking with his disciples. And that's 1, verse 4, and he says, While staying with them, he ordered them, Don't leave Jerusalem. Do not depart from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he, he's telling them, you've you got to hang around Jerusalem. Uh, you've got to think, if you're the apostles, put yourself in their shoes. Just like, a, um, not, you know, this is 40 days in now, it's so about a month ago. Christ was just murdered in Jerusalem. They're his right-hand men. He's like, hey guys, stay in Jerusalem. They're like, seriously? Like, you were just killed there. You want us to go back there? It's like, yeah, you hang Jerusalem. All right? It says in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So he just said, wait, the Holy Spirit's coming. And still they didn't quite really understand what that meant. And he was like, the Holy Spirit's coming, so hang in Jerusalem. They're like, all right, Jesus, so here you are, back from the dead. Now let's get this whole kingdom thing going. What do you think? Now's the time, right, Jesus? I mean, if anybody should do it, at this time, it should be you, because you just came back from the grave. So I think people would listen to what you have to say. So here's the time, Jesus. Now you're restoring the kingdom, right? This is his response. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed for his, by his own authority. You got to think if you're the apostles and you hear that, the letdown is like, oh, come on. Like, what is this mystic stuff? Like, just do it. Like, what is going on here? Like, you're kidding me. Like, Right now, you're still not going to do this. Like, what do you have in mind, Jesus? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When Daniel was talking about this kingdom, who was in this kingdom? Was it just Israel? No. It was all nations and all people shall find themselves beneath this coming, the Son of Man. That's what Jesus called himself, was the Son of Man. Daniel said, the Son of Man, when he's here, all nations and all people will be underneath his lordship. And so Jesus kind of deflects the question. It's like it's not time quite yet, because something should be said. One day the kingdom will be restored. When he returns from this earth, all sin and death and pain and, and all these things, no more crying, no more tears, says Revelation, that will be gone forever. And it says that the Son won't even be needed anymore because Jesus will be with us and we will be with him just like Eden. That will one day happen fully restored. But, but Jesus says, that's not happening now, guys. Right now, you are going to be my witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's addressing this time period that we're in now that the apostles essentially began. All right. And so we, we have this idea that the kingdom is, is already here, but it's not yet. You'll probably hear that phrase often, is that Jesus is talking about a kingdom. When he leaves, we're going to see the Spirit is ultimately going to be coming in his stead, continuing his work. As Luke says in verse 1, he says what Jesus began to do is in the gospel, insinuating that his work didn't stop when the Holy Spirit came, but he continued to work by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. We talked about Trinitarian theology. God is one, but yet three persons. And we see that he's working in all three persons together, unseparated, but still three different persons, all in the book of Acts. And it's, trust me, it's confusing, I know, but I'd love to talk to you about it if you want to, because I love the topic of the Trinity. But that's how Christ is going to be working. But again, you're the apostles, right? So you're hearing, okay, the Holy Spirit's coming. Uh, you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're like, to the ends of the earth, like, whoa, Jesus, like, that's a, that's a mighty task. And what does he do? Next verse. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up. And the cloud took him out of their sight. This is, another, is, the, is the ascension, right? So he said, all right, guys, go to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. Poof. And they're just like, what? It's like, what is, what is happening? Like, the king, he's gone now. It's like, wonderful. Surely, like... How will this even happen now? Because the king just left us. And what do these angels say? They're looking in the heaven. You can see them. They're just like staring. It's like, Jesus is crazy. And it says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? Like, what are you guys staring at? They're just like, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. A little bit of hope there, saying he will return, guys. The same way you saw him go up, he's going to come one day again, he will return. It was kind of the, the underlying hint was like, but don't wait for that. He just gave you something to do. Go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so the title of the sermon, I think it is, The Expectation of the Holy Spirit. What did I name it? I don't know why I named it. The, 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 the Waiting for the Holy Spirit. I think that's what I changed the name to. Because that was what they were tasked with, right? Is waiting for the Holy Spirit. And so if we harken back to the beginning of our sermon, talk about all that's in the book of Acts, we know that this kingdom is continuing as Christ left. When people, you and I, when we place our faith in Christ, Scripture says the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. We realize that we need Him. We realize that we are jacked up broken people we need a savior who took away the pain of sin and death before god and saved us from his wrath by dying in our place we realize we need that and the holy spirit comes and actually dwells in our hearts and thus when he dwells in our hearts think of it as god sets up his very throne in our hearts where he sits down and he demands to be the only throne in your heart he says you're my child now and we begin getting that peace, the bottomless pit we were talking about. We begin, we begin sensing and, and seeing that, wow, he really does feel that. Spirit, thank you for the, coming into my, my, my life and my heart because I, now I, I, I get it. You really will bring more joy, as the psalmist says in Psalm 4, more joy to me than when wine and grain abound. You, you really do satisfy 
me. But right now we have the apostles, they're waiting for the Spirit to come. So I want to address something as we seek to close in the next few minutes, is this. The kingdom, yes, it, it continued as the church was born. We'll see the church being born in a couple of weeks. Here in Tom's River, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore, the kingdom is still being expanded. It's still, the story continues. When Luke ends the book of Acts, he does not end it like, and this is the story of the church, period. He ends it kind of open-ended. All right, like Paul is on his way to Rome, and we'll get there one year. I don't know when. And so he kind of like hangs, so you're reading, you're like, oh, is that it? And many scholars believe the reason why he kind of left the story incomplete is the idea that the story is still being written today. The story is still continuing 2,000 years in this in-between time when Christ is setting up his throne in the hearts of men and women today. That time is still continuing today where he is establishing his kingdom that stretches to all nations and are all peoples. As we know, there are billions of Christians in the world from one end of the earth and to the other, from the north and to the south. They're all over the world. We see these prophecies are indeed being fulfilled in our midst over the past 2,000 years. So I want to ask you something. The, 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 the story of Acts is filled with amazing things. I mean, blind people seeing. We see thousands coming to know him. We see the word from 12 people. Right? They're, they're, uh, and Paul's in Philippi. I think it is Philippi. Um, he gets there and they're like, hey, this is a guy who's turning the world upside down. The guy who's turning the world upside down. Think about that statement. There was 12 men that were sent out and these 12 men literally changed the world. In just a couple of generations, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians and just a few centuries later, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. From zero to nothing that quickly is incredible. And it started with just 12 men. And so guys, as we continue the book of Acts, I don't want you to read these stories. Is God working in a crazy big ways 2,000 years ago that we get to look at and say, oh, that was, that's cool, but that's not going to happen today. Peter preached and thousands just became Christians. That's, that's not going to happen today. The point of Luke writing this, right, is to actually show that this is, should be expected of every age in the church. We should not limit God to work one way then and to just stop and say, sorry, we'll just have this kind of lame, you know, uh, work of the Holy Spirit between now and then. That's not what he did. I want to read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards in his book, um, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. This is what he says. The work is carried out in an unusual and extraordinary way. He has brought to pass new things, strange works, and has worked in such a way as to surprise both men and angels. And God has done thus in times past, so we have no reason to think, but that he will do so still. The prophecies of Scripture give us a reason to think. This is so, such an incredible thought. Gives us a reason to think that God has things to accomplish that have yet never been seen. So we ought not to limit God where he has not limited himself. And I read that to say that Redeemer Fellowship in Tom's River, New Jersey, what we read in the book of Acts, I want you guys to be expecting the Spirit to come in the same way, because He still can. 
It will take prayer. It will take fasting. It will take your time and your energy and all your hearts to pour into your neighbors and to your co-workers and to your friends and your family and your, 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 your children to pour the gospel into them. But as you're doing so, we have to expect the Spirit to fall because I believe He still can work in this way today. So as we're establishing our mission as a new church on the Jersey Shore, let's pray with expectancy that we see him do in the book of Acts. God, would you please do so again? I want the next generation after this generation to write about what happened on the Jersey Shore and how God miraculously started saving thousands of people and addicts and, and people who are on the, on the bottom trenches of, of their lives and just the, the rock-bottom pits were pull it up and radically saved by the power of God. I want to hear... Hundreds of those stories by God's power through His Spirit. And guys, He told the apostles, I want you to wait because you're going to be sent out. And the whole idea is that, guys, you are sent out. You are to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not for a special 12 group of people. This is our call. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is for all of us to do. This is your call. And so, as we leave here today, let's leave expecting Christ to work in this church. Let's leave here with our hearts preparing to be aligned to his mission to reach those who don't know him, to reach the hurting, to reach the broken, to reach the poor and busted up who are looking for answers, who just need an answer. Let our hearts and our lives align to God's mission and let us expect him to work in a mighty way on the Jersey Shore. So um, let me pray. Jesus, um, we pray that we don't read these stories as something that happened a long time ago, that, um, that we don't have faith that you could not repeat again. Lord, we want you, we beg, we plead that you would repeat these things again. Spirit, as Jonathan Edwards says, may our hearts not limit you to what you can do. Lord, would you please guide our church, Redeemer Fellowship, as we're a few months in, still trying to formulate and to verbalize what our mission is and to find it as we're going through this book. Lord, align us to your mission. The main, the primary things that you want us to be about as we are going to see, would you please help us to be about those things and those things only. And Lord, please expand your kingdom in New Jersey, through us. We want to be your subjects. We want you to reign in our hearts. We want you to be the only throne in our hearts. We don't want to crowd your throne with, with other false gods trying to seek pleasure and happiness and joy and contentment from false entities. Lord, we want you to be the only throne in our hearts. Spirit, would you help us to do that? We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.